We've all made good decisions and we've all made bad decisions. But what can you do before a decision is made that helps you get the results you want more consistently? On this episode, the framework for better decision making. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 499. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. A question that I am asked often by folks in our community and our academy is, how do I make better decisions? Or if we're in the midst of trying to support someone on making a better decision, what's the process I can use? And decisions is something, of course, as leaders, we are being asked to jump in on on almost a daily basis. And yet, most of us never really received any substantial training on how to make better decisions. Today, I am so glad to be able to welcome someone to the show who's absolutely an expert on decision-making. She's going to help us to really frame our next decision effectively. Annie Duke is an author, corporate speaker, and consultant in the decision-making space. As a former professional poker player, Annie won more than $4 million in tournament poker before retiring from the game in 2012. Prior to becoming a professional player, Annie was awarded a National Science Foundation Fellowship to study cognitive psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. She is the co-founder of the Alliance for Decision Education, a nonprofit whose mission is to improve the lives of students by empowering them through decision skills education. Annie's prior book, Thinking in Bets, is a national bestseller, and she just released her newest book, How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Annie, I'm so glad to welcome you to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So we do have a lot of bias in our decision-making, and we don't necessarily look at things as logically as we probably should to make better decisions. And you mentioned some of the key things that we struggle with around decision-making in the book. And one of the words that's used a lot in the book is the term resulting. And I'm wondering if you could paint the picture of what resulting is and why it becomes an issue in decision-making. Yeah, if I can, I'd love to just demonstrate it through a little narrative, because I think that if you can ground it in an example, people can really understand it better. So what resulting is, is saying, if I know how a decision turned out, that this tells me everything I need to know about whether the decision quality was good. So if it turns out well, it must have been a great decision. If it turns out poorly, it must have been a bad decision. And one of the ways that you can see this, and I encourage people to do this with their teams, is just to ask the people on on your team, or think of this yourself as a thought experiment, what was my best decision of the last year? You know, and just write that down and have people write it down. And then same thing, what was the worst decision that you made the last year? You know, and think about that for yourself and write it down. And what you'll find when you do this as a team exercise is that everybody writes down what the best thing that happened was or what the worst thing that happened was, not anything to do with the decision. So they sort of index to like the outcome. But of course, that's really silly because that would be like saying, like, if I drive home drunk and I get home safely, that somehow that decision was a good decision. And yet you can see that that's the way we behave. Yeah, it's, it's really amazing. And I think it really makes the point that you made, just because you made a good decision doesn't mean you're going to get a good outcome. 
And the reverse is true too, right? You may have made a horrible decision and you lucked out of getting a good outcome, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the decision was sound. And I think one of the things that I'm really curious about is how can we be less suspect to kind of that that resulting, that hindsight bias, and actually make better decisions. And you've really done a good job of laying a framework for this. And before we go into the framework, you know, one of the classic things that people do is do a pro-cons list when they're trying to decide on something, right? And, and, yeah. and you really advise people not to go down that route. What's problematic about a pro-cons list? Yeah, so there's a lot of things tied up in there, right? What's interesting is, first of all, the, the way to figure out how to create a good decision process is actually the same answer as how to figure out how to overcome this resulting problem, which is the same answer as to the problem with a pros and cons list. So they're all kind of tied together. So let's just start with the pros and cons list, and then maybe we can work our way to the other step. The issue with the pros and cons list is kind of twofold. One has to do with its kind of lack of dimension, and the other has to do with how objective a pros and cons list is. So let's start with the lack of dimension. It's very hard to make a good decision. In fact, you cannot make a good decision, not one that's high quality, without a couple of things. One has to do with when you're thinking about a pro or a con, which we could call the upside or the downside. When you think about any individual outcome, you want to know how big of a pro is it versus how big of a con is it? And that really matters. How much is this going to advance me toward my goal or how much is it going to retreat, cause me to retreat away? You know, is the con a hangnail and the pro is I win a million dollars? Or maybe the pro is my breath is minty fresh and the con is I could die. So, <laughs> right. so we're, we're missing that dimensionality that has to do with sort of what's the magnitude of the pro or con such that as you're sort of looking at that list, it's very hard to know, like, how are you supposed to balance those pros and cons against each other? Because it's just a flat list. Like you could have 10 pros and one con, but the con could be death. So that makes that very hard to do. But the other dimension that it's missing is probability. How likely are any of those pros or cons to happen? Because if you were to do a pros and cons list trying to decide whether to found a startup, you would say no every time. Because founding a startup is just a big list of cons with like a couple of little pros. Like I could become really rich and I could maybe create a lot of productivity and good in the world. But like it's so many cons on that list because we know that most startups fail. So why would you do that? Well, because the magnitude of the pro, how big the pro is, how, how much good comes from you doing it is enough to sort of balance this out. And when you look at that combined with the probability, you can then figure out is the likelihood that I'm going to get an outcome that's going to really advance me to my goals enough to balance out against the likelihood that I'm going to have something bad happen to me. So you need these two dimensions the magnitude of the payoff and the likelihood of any of those outcomes occurring in order to make a good decision. And a pros and cons list is losing both of those. But the bigger problem with a pros and cons list has to do with the perspective that it's expressing. So there's a lot written, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, have read Thinking Fast and Slow from Daniel Kahneman. Oh, yeah. And you know we know that, that our decisions are biased that we tend to be too confident, that we think we have too much control over the ways that things are going to turn out, that we're above average at a lot of things. 
that the status quo is going to hold that today is much more predictive of tomorrow than it actually is. I can go, I mean, there's so go look at the Wikipedia page. There's a billion biases. So the problem with the pros and cons list is that a pros and cons list actually amplifies the influence of bias in your decision-making. And here's kind of why we can sort of tie a lot of these biases into a pattern called motivated reasoning and motivated reasoning is just kind of, as it sounds, you have a conclusion that you kind of want to get to, or a belief that you want to confirm to be true. And you actually reason in a way that's motivated to confirm it, to confirm the, the decision that you want to make or to confirm the belief that you already hold. So that's motivated reasoning. It's this kind of circular pattern of reasoning. And you can see how a pros and cons list makes that worse because nobody's ever gone into a pros and cons list as much as they'd like to think they are saying, I don't know what I want to do. I don't have a preference for whether I want to say yes or no. Mm-hmm. We, of course, once you've started to think about the decision, you already are in a place where you started to form an opinion. And once you form an, an opinion, the way that you end up constructing that pros and cons list is actually just going to support the opinion that you're trying to get to. Oh, if you're trying to get to yes, you're going to put a lot of pros down and not so many cons. And if you're trying to get to no, you're going to put down a lot of cons and not so many Pros and, and I'm not saying that you're doing this on purpose. These are all things that are kind of happening under the surface, but that's what a pros and cons list does. It just amplifies bias and a good decision process. And what my book is trying to do is get you to remove bias from the process, not kind of add to the ruckus with a tool like a pros and cons list. Yeah, that's what I found to be really fascinating as I read through the model of really removing, I mean, we're never going to remove all bias, right? But removing a significant amount so we can think about decisions in a way that's a little bit more objective. When you're inviting people to start on this, where do you go? Could you maybe just walk us through how how to think about this in a better way? Yeah, absolutely. So what we're trying to do is instead of amplifying bias, we're trying to dampen it. And to your, to what you just said, you're not going to be perfect at it. In fact, you're going to be pretty bad at it because we all have these cognitive biases that we are sort of like built into our mind. But if you can reduce the influence of bias in your decision-making, you're going to do so much better than people who aren't trying to do that. So it's, it's like compounding interest, like small changes are going to make really huge differences. So when I try to sort of get people to start down this path, I actually start with the resulting problem. And what I try to explain to people is, look, here's what's happening when you're resulting. You know, the salesperson who, you know, closed a huge sale or the person who's maybe been in a slump for a month or the investment that worked out or the one that didn't, and you're trying to figure out whether the decision was good or bad. And we're really bad with that. And the reason is that at the moment that we make a decision, there's all sorts of different ways that that decision could turn out, right? So we can think about something really simple, like I'm choosing a, a route to go to work. I could make it on time. There could be a tra- you know, a traffic accident on the road. I could get pulled over. There could be a road closure. There could be bad weather. You know, and on average, I'm trying to choose a route that's going to get me to work on time, but there's lots of different ways it could turn out. And just because I get to work on time doesn't necessarily mean the decision was good. That's actually a little bit separate and apart from it, unless I see that I get to work on time over and over and over again. So the point is on one try, I don't really know very much. So what's happening and the reason why we think we know so much is because we forget about all those other ways that the world could turn out. So as we're sort of taking a look back to trying to figure out whether a decision was good or bad, 
we want to sort of reconstruct those other ways that things could have turned out and then start thinking about like how likely were those things to happen in order to start to figure out, well, was this decision really good or bad? Because just because it turned out poorly, if that particular outcome was one of 10 and it was only going to happen 2% of the time, it's probably true that you just sort of got unlucky and vice versa. If it turned out really well and that way it turned out well was one of 10 and it turns out that it was only going to happen that way 2% of the time now that I've had time to reflect on it, that means the decision was probably pretty bad. So I always start people there with kind of this retrospective, like how do you sort of think about whether a decision was good or bad? And you have to do it by kind of putting it back in the context of all the other stuff that could have happened. And once you understand that, it's pretty easy to get to, well, hold on a second, maybe when I'm making a new decision, I should be specifically mapping that stuff out so that I can think about the decision really clearly before the fact. And then when I do get an outcome, I can look back and think what my process is. And that would seems to me would make everything a lot smoother. Yeah, indeed. And and I'm also thinking about this through the lens of um, you know, like driving to work as an example. Like we have a lot of iterations of that and we can collect data over time. And of course, a lot of the decisions I think we tend to think of when we think about am I making a great decision tend to be major like one-time decisions, right? Like we don't have a way to go back and then like take data over time if we made the decision 13 or 14 or 20 times. And so all the more important to have done some thinking in advance, right? Because we don't get to go back and redo it again and collect a lot more data. That, that's exactly right. Because so so here's the thing. It, it's true. Like if you're choosing, you know, a lot of the things that we're doing are kind of one-offs where we we don't get a lot of cracks at it. If we're putting into place a strategic plan that's a three to five year strategic plan, obviously we're not doing that every single day. When we're deciding whether we're going to marry somebody, I assume, you know, most people have the goal that they're not going to do a lot of iterations of that. So, you know, whether it's in your personal life or or in your professional life, a lot of decisions will sort of feel like one-offs. Not only that, with a lot of decisions we're making, we're pretty hyper aware that there's a whole bunch of stuff that we don't know. For one thing, we, we can make some guesses about how the future is going to unfold, but we certainly don't know. And, you know, then when we also think about our own knowledge and, and what do we know, for example, about an investment we're going to make or a particular sales strategy or a software feature that we want to release and how much users are going to like it, that, you know, the stuff we know is, is sort of a small little bit of dust and the stuff we don't know is like the size of the universe. I mean, obviously we would all be making very different decisions if we were omniscient. So the thing though, that's interesting is that once you start to realize, well, what I really should be doing is thinking about, you know, as I consider a particular option, what are the different possibilities for the way that that option might turn out? And what's the probability, like what's the likelihood of each of those things unfolding? And you sort of map that out and then you can compare that to other options because now you have a sense of the likelihood of good things happening versus bad things happening. You can do that for each option. Once you start to do that, what that does is it gets you to start to really think about how to fill in the gaps in your knowledge. And that's actually really important because first of all, the gaps in our knowledge are the things that are influenced. That's the main thing that we have control over that influences our decisions in a negative way. So when we think about the fact that we don't really have control over the way that the world is going to unfold, one of the reasons we don't is because of luck. And you can't change luck. Luck just kind of happens. If something's going to happen 2% of the time, it's going to happen 2% of the time. 
You don't have control over what is going to happen, you know, when you're going to see that happen. But the other reason that you have this sort of inability to really predict the future perfectly is because you don't know a lot. And that's the thing that you do have a lot of control over. So when you put in a good decision process that involves mapping these possibilities out and trying to figure out how likely those are, inherent in that is a question that you're asking yourself, which is, what are the things that I know that could help me to figure out what the possibilities are and how likely those are to occur? Also, what are the things that I could find out? I'll give you a really simple example of what happens when you demand that of yourself, even if it's something that you kind of wish you were omniscient about, but you don't know too much about why it's helpful. So I'll I'll just go through this exercise with you really quickly. So my computer is on a table. Well, it's a desk, actually. My computer is on a desk. Now you can't see the desk that it's sitting on, right? Right. All right. So you've never laid eyes on this desk. So watch this. So Dave, give me a guess of how much this desk weighs. And you can give me like an exact guess and then you could give me like the smallest amount you think the guess, the desk weighs and the biggest amount it weighs. Okay. Hmm. I'm, I don't know how much does the desk weigh? Uh, 150 pounds. Okay. What do you think the lowest amount this desk could weigh is? Ooh. Um, I'm going to say lowest amount, 50 pounds, highest amount, 750 pounds. Okay, great. Notice that I didn't demand of you, like I let you give me a range, but in giving me that range, look at how much of the world that you just eliminated, Mm. right? Because if I told you that it was sitting on the back of an automobile, you wouldn't have guessed that the lowest amount it could weigh was 50 pounds. You would have guessed something much higher. Yeah. And if I said it was sitting on, uh, on top of a cooler, you know, now you wouldn't have guessed that 50 pounds was the lowest amount it could weigh either. (laughs) Right, Right. Right. So it turns out that even though you can't see the desk, you start to think about what's called a reference class. Well, let me think about desks that I've seen in my life. Let me think about how much things genuinely weigh. Cause like, I know a lot about how much things weigh and you just eliminated a whole bunch of stuff in your decision. So that if you had to decide, if I said to you without letting you see the desk, can you come help me move the desk? You would know whether you needed to bring a friend, Mm. right? So that, that just helps you. And the other thing that you did when I asked you to give me the range, 50 pounds to 750 pounds, is you in expressing that to me, asked me a question. You may not know that you did, but you expressed to me that you had uncertainty, that you had a knowledge gap about how much the desk weighed. You expressed to me exactly how much. It's really different for you to say that it weighs between 50 and 750 pounds than for you to say, I think it's about 150 pounds, but I think it's between one and 200 pounds. Uh, The latter tells me that you're much more certain about what it weighs. And the former says, I haven't laid eyes on the desk. I don't know that much about it. So if we're working on a decision together, you've now asked me, can you help me? Because I'm not exactly sure here. I know some stuff, but I don't know enough to get really exact. And that's part of the beauty of this type of decision process where you're really thinking about what the possibilities are. You're really thinking about how likely those things are, that when you start doing that work, you're not only asking yourself the question to start thinking about what do I know and what could I find out, but inherently in doing that process with other people, you're asking them those questions too. And a lot of the stuff that you don't know lives in other people's heads. And now you get to start extracting it from them as part of your process. 
And that's where potentially, if you have other people involved, I'm guessing you maybe make better decisions. And I want to ask you about that too, because I think the bias that a lot of us have, and I think I do most of the time, is if that there's more people involved, if there's a team involved, that we're going to make better decisions the more people are giving inputs in that decision. And from talking with you, I'm sensing that there's maybe some truth to that, but it's but it's a little more complicated. Yeah. So it's interesting, actually. That is potentially true. I mean, we all know the old aphorism, two heads are better than one. And the question is, is that true? And the answer is only if you're speaking to the other people, interacting with the other people in a way that actually allows you to see what lives in their head. So the main issue that happens with teams is that people discuss things in groups. And as soon as you start to discuss stuff in groups, what happens, and we've all been in these meetings, right, is that a consensus starts to form. This is particularly problematic if the person who's in the leadership role or the person who's perceived to be a subject matter expert, or even sometimes just the person with the most charisma or who's the most articulate. When they start to speak, people start to coalesce around that consensus. And this is partly because people think the goal of meetings is to reach agreement, which is not at all the goal of a meeting. The goal of a meeting should be to inform to inform everybody of, of what the different points of view are so that whoever has the ownership of the decision can then make a more informed decision. So there was a really elegant kind of example of this, of how people's points of view get suppressed in a meeting once you start to see consensus form. And it was done by Richard Zeckhauser and Dan Levy at Harvard. And it was the simplest study. They had these big sort of group lectures, you know, with lots and lots of students in them that you, you know, we all remember from college. And with one section of the class, they asked people to answer questions by raising their hands. So this would be the same as speaking up in a group setting, right? So when that happened and they had people, you know, raise their hands, what would happen is everybody would sort of look around and see what the smart people were doing. And then once the smart people started raising their hands, these super majorities would form where, you know, suddenly everybody's hand would start to go up, you know, answering that was the right answer to the question. But with another section, what they did was they asked them to answer the question using a clicker. So this is now private to them. And when the students were offered the opportunity to answer privately, all of a sudden those super majorities broke up and you started to see a much bigger spread of opinions about what the right answer is. And there's been lots of work in, you know, organizational psychology, behavioral psychology that shows that this is basically what's happening on teams, is that once there's a consensus that starts to form, even when people have an opinion that, that runs counter to the consensus that's being formed, even when people have information that might be really useful to the team, it gets suppressed. So the question is, what is the really easy fix for this? So let me just ask you something. So we know that people don't like to disagree particularly when they're on teams, we feel like being part of a team player is that we're all on the same page and we agree and certainly want to agree with leadership. So this is the question I have for you, Dave. Let's say I was trying to get your feedback on something, like whether a particular sales strategy was going to be profitable. And I wanted to get your feedback. If I'm getting your feedback, what is the thing that you need to know from me? What would I have to tell you in order for you to know that your opinion on the sales strategy disagrees with mine. Gosh, I guess you'd have to tell me what you're thinking already on it, mm -hmm. where you're leaning, maybe what other people in the organization have said, who you've talked to already, that kind of a thing? Exactly. So here's where we can sort of unlock the magic, right? 
if I tell you what I think first, then if you have a different point of view, I have now forced you into a position where you must disagree with me, mm. which is uncomfortable for most people. And it's particularly uncomfortable people who are, who are junior. And if I'm in a leadership role or I'm a subject matter expert. So what we want to do is figure out a way, how can I get Dave to tell me what he thinks without offering my opinion first? So I could outline what the sales strategy is. And I could just say, can you tell me to map out a decision tree, right? Like just map out what do you think the possible outcomes are of this strategy? Like if we think about profitability, is it going to increase sales by 25% or 15% or 5% or is it going to be negative? Maybe tell me how likely you think those are to occur and just have you do that without telling you what I think first. Now, this is very unnatural for most people because most of the time we think that our opinion is actually really important data. So I'll say, hey, um, we're thinking about the sales strategy. I really think it's a big winner, but could you look at it and tell me what you think? Does that sound familiar? Yeah. So wh what we want to do is take that piece where I say, I think it's a big winner. We want to take away that that bit. Now that's fine if we're we're talking one on one, obviously. But what do you do when you're when you have a team? Because obviously I could withhold my opinion, but as soon as Dave says something, now Dave has affected the group. So it's really simple. When you have a meeting, you know what you're going to be discussing. Have each of the team members look at whatever the brief is on what you're trying to get feedback from. Tell them the feedback that you're trying to get, whether it's a forecast or, you know, a rating on a scale of zero to five about what they think the market opportunity is or, you know, whatever the feedback is that you're trying to get that's going to help you make that decision. And then get them to give you their opinions independently where they can't see what each other has said. Combine it together for everybody to review before the meeting. And now when you come into the meeting, everybody's actually seen what everybody thinks. It's like having people answer with a clicker in class. And all of a sudden, you've now actually harnessed all the different opinions that live on your team instead of suppressing them. And you are now going to be more in informed as a decision maker because of it. So two heads are better than one if you really are leveraging independent thought before you are biasing it with what one person's view are. And so if you can get really clear on what's the decisions you're thinking of making and have people detail out those outcomes and then assign likelihood to each of those outcomes, that that's a much better way to get to data that's useful around decisions than if you just walked in and said, hey, what do you think? Yeah, so absolutely. Two heads are, are absolutely better than one. The problem is that we spend our lives mostly turning two heads into one big head. So if you can let the two heads actually be two heads, you're going to do better in your decision making. And, you know, you don't need to have them map out a whole decision tree each time. I mean, it could literally be just yes or no. You just get everybody to vote independently. You know, should we move forward with this? Yes or no. Make sure they write it down independently so that people don't see each other's answers. It's helpful if you have them provide a rationale, but it can be pretty simple. So it could be all the way from something as complicated as a hiring committee creating a hiring rubric in advance of meeting with a candidate and then each member of the committee filling that rubric out independently and then seeing where the dispersion is happening, where, where there's a difference of opinion that you can really now dig in on, as opposed to, you know, the other thing that happens in meetings is you talk a lot about the places that you agree. I'd like to reiterate what Dave said and circle back to that and give my own reasons as to why I agree with Dave. It's kind of uninteresting. It's like, okay, Dave and I agree the earth is round. That's fine. I, I'm really interested in the fact that Dave is a five in terms of this candidate's conscientiousness, and I'm a two. And now we can have a conversation about that and see, you know, live in that space where we have a difference of opinion. 
And that's going to inform the decision much better. And here's, by the way, another just key thing is that there's no reason that you and I need to agree about the conscientiousness of that candidate. Because in the end, we're going to take some sort of vote. There's going to be some sort of decision. And it's totally fine if we walk away and you still think the candidate's a five and I still think the candidate's a two. It's totally fine. That's the whole point of having different people on team. So this allows us to get into a situation where we're really harnessing the different points of view that live on the team. We're getting to be able to see them in a way that we wouldn't if we were having the initial discussion in the meeting as opposed to eliciting that before. And then here's the really wonderful thing about it is that it actually makes your meetings much more efficient because you've already seen the spread of people's opinions. And now as you're sort of facilitating that conversation, you know exactly the areas that matter most because the areas that matter most are the places where people disagree with each other. And it actually creates a lot of efficiency in the discussion. Yeah, this is, I mean, I think your book is worth picking up just to get a team good at thinking about this and looking at the decision tree and getting to a place where if you did nothing else but do what you just described, which is you get independent input in advance to be able to make better decisions. Not only are you making better decisions, but like you said, you're working a lot more efficiently too, and you're not spending the time doing the, well, I agree, I disagree on things that maybe aren't as central to the process. And and that's the value, I think, in spending time in advance of thinking through the decision, the potential outcomes, is you don't... I shouldn't say you don't. You're less likely to go down the road of like one person who's charismatic in the room and their you know pet issue on whatever thing that might bias everyone else in the conversation that may or may not really be the most important thing for people to be landing on. Yeah, and you know I understand that you don't always want to get this information. You know sometimes you just want to do like something that's kind of quick and dirty, and you can do that by just like for example if it's just should we move forward or not? Do you want to say yes or no? Just have people write it down on a piece of paper like in the room. And that will accomplish the same thing for things that you kind of want to do on the fly. And by implementing the process independently, I get to actually find out what it is that they think. Mm -hmm. Annie, this is so helpful. I know so many folks are going to find really some practical things they can implement into their conversations today. The book is How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices. Annie Duke, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you so much, Dave. I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Annie. Many related episodes to today's conversation. One of them is episode 255, How Women Make Stronger, Smarter Choices with Therese Houston. I talked with Therese on that episode on how decision-making, specifically through the lens of women in the workplace, and some of the things she's uncovered in her research of how women make better choices. Uh, Lots of detail there in episode 255. And Therese is working on a new book on feedback, which will be out soon. And so I'm looking forward to having her back on the show, uh, hopefully in the near future. Also recommended episode 355, how to approach corporate budgeting with Jody Wadrich. Uh, one of the questions that I've gotten over the years is, well, how do you handle the situation when you, for the first time maybe, or maybe in a new situation, all of a sudden have to put together a budget? Uh, where do you begin? How do you start that process? And perhaps even more importantly, 
What's the right mindset to have as a leader when putting together a budget, especially one of some complexity? Episode 355 is a really good listen for you. Jody and I talk through his mindset as a leader with a lot of experience of putting together budgets and what you can do and have the right mindsets in order to engage in that process in a really healthy way. And then finally, I recommend episode 454, How to Ask Better Questions with David Marquet. David's book, his most recent book on language that leaders use, just such a powerful read. And specifically in that episode 454, we talk about how do you ask better questions? And of course, if you are a leader who is willing to learn to ask better questions, as I know many of you in our listening community are, it is such a great way to collect better information. And if you get better information, as we talked about today, you'll ultimately probably make better decisions with that information. Episode 454 is where to go for that. All of those episodes you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. If you'll set up your free membership, you'll get access to the entire library searchable by topics since 2011. One of the topics in the library online is decision-making. So you can find all of the past episodes relating to decision-making, including the ones I already mentioned. Plus, you'll get access to my weekly leadership guide that comes every Wednesday with notes and resources from that week's episode, but also all of the other things I found online that I think will be helpful to you. Plus, the free membership includes access to all of the free audio courses inside of the membership. So all you need to do is just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set that up, and when you do, you'll be off and running for, uh, really, (laughs) I don't know about eternity, but for a while. Uh, See you next week for episode 500. Take care. Bye.